welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we're asking the big question. Um, there have been some voices recently, uh, not so recently, but also recently, and ongoing voices in a way, um, shouting out there, science is broken. Um, so we were wondering, is it really broken? And if it is, is open science the, the cure, right? Right, exactly. So we thought we'd talk to one of those voices. So um, Daniel Engber is a science journalist for Slate magazine, and he's written a number of uh, articles in which he's used the phrase, science is broken. So we wanted to ask him what he thought about open science and whether he thought science was actually self-correcting. Yeah, I mean, uh, Daniel has been, um, he's been quite, um, quite a strong voice, um, basically pinpointing the problems with replication crisis in cancer research, uh, but also uh, like just being generally concerned about how the current state of um, science um, is and how it's being done. And, um, and we think it has a lot to do with open science, um, the, the fixes he's sort of calling for. Mm -hmm. So let's see what he has to say. My name is Daniel Engber. I am a science journalist. Uh, I have been covering reproducibility issues in science and open science uh, for at least between two and six years, depending on how you how you define it. Um, and uh, otherwise, I often write about. Um, Uh, the life sciences and social sciences in particular, that's my, my background is in neuroscience. And, uh, and I also write about sort of the intersection between science and culture. You've coined this sort of very provocative term, uh, science is broken. And I wonder whether you could tell us more about why you think science is broken and what led you to this conclusion? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, that, <laughs> it's sort of how I got interested in, in writing about these issues more broadly. Was, uh, so I said, you know, depending how you define it, I've been working on this stuff for six or seven years back in 2011, um, I embarked on a very big reporting project about um, the use of mouse models in biomedicine. Um, and uh, what I was interested in was just the way the, the mouse and, and to somewhat a lesser extent, the rat had become ubiquitous uh, models. Um, and, and really, if you kind of graph the number of papers using different um, organisms over time, they just, you know, they squeeze the other animals out almost completely or to, you know, very narrow uh, slivers of, of the pie. And that was interesting to me because just, you know, not in a science is broken way, but just in as, as kind of it, it piqued my curiosity. What does that mean for, um, you know, has that in, increased the rate of discovery or what? And what I found in doing that work, uh, and again, I should say I didn't 
know anything about open science or reproducibility issues at all. But what I, what I found in doing that research was that there is a real danger there in terms of, um, I wouldn't say the reproducibility, but the, you know, the external validity or applicability of the, of all of these findings that we were having these, you know, towering stacks of, of, uh, mouse research papers, uh, being created. But there was increasingly, in, in my view, um, kind of a disconnect between um, all of that work and what it actually might mean for humans, let alone um, other mammals or other animals. So that was the first time I, I, I began to wonder about, you know, that my sense up until that point as a science journalist was that, you know, uh, science is self-correcting. Every once in a while, a finding comes out that turns out to be wrong and subsequent research, you know, corrects the record or, or, um, redirects the field towards, uh, in, increasingly true ideas, uh, that, that, uh, you know, the, I've covered those sorts of issues in the past, but here was something where I could look at an entire field of research, like, tuberculosis research since the 70s or something. And I was talking to people who were saying, this has just been a, uh, the field has just gone down the wrong path. You could look at these hundreds and hundreds of papers um, without challenging, you know, the wh- whether the results in those papers were, you know, internally accurate. You could say, this is just wasted time to some extent because tuberculosis works very differently in mice than in people. And you could actually look at the outcomes in terms of uh, new and useful TB treatments um, that have been developed as a result of all this mouse research and compare it to the TB treatments that were developed in the preceding era of just sort of brute force drug testing. And you could say pretty convincingly that you know, all of this very precise, sophisticated work has just not been that useful. So that was a revelatory moment for me because I, I understood finally that it is possible uh, that this wonderful institution um, called science can produce can 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 really uh go down the wrong path and 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 then sustain itself um sort of by its own momentum but it kind of changed the way i approached my job because i kind of had this in the back of my head that just because a an idea has been studied for a decade or 20 years just because there is an entire shelf in the library of papers devoted to this idea doesn't mean that that idea is true and it doesn't mean that uh, it's worth continuing along that line. And I, that was a very destabilizing thing to come across as a science journalist and upsetting. And um, I guess in that sense, um, I've been drawn, yes, one keeps poking a bruise. I've been drawn to, to keep looking at that and, and understand it better. Well, as a former scientist myself, I totally hear and agree with what you're saying. However, I also know the standard answer to this critique of the mouse models. Um, and this is basically, there's a very good reason why we use mouse models, uh, why we establish those as, as the animal model research. Uh, for reducing the variability of what we are studying, uh, and so on and so on, um, and to have uh, much more reliable data in the end. Um, 
And actually, there are treatments, treatments maybe not specifically in, for tuberculosis, but in other fields which did come out of the mouse research. So there are new drugs on the market. There are new treatments, new therapies, new ideas out there. Um, I wonder if this is uh, something that you had a lot of discussions about um, with other people and what they, they say to that? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, there, are, there are many excellent reasons why the mouse became the preeminent model. Uh, you know, there are, there are scientific reasons and there are historical reasons. There's, um, you know, things that ha- it, uh, it just so happened to be uh, very useful. I mean, even very practical things like um, it's much easier to keep a co- and cheaper to keep a colony of mice than a colony of cats. It's, um, it's, it's easier to sell that idea to the public who may have sensitivities about animal research. Uh, it turns out to be quite easy to do, uh, you know, genetic manipulations on mice. And then once, of course, once you have a hundred years of mouse research, uh, you know, beginning with cancer studies in the beginning of the 20th century, once you have that huge body of research, you just know so much about this animal and you have such uh, well-honed tools. You know, you have these uh, strains of inbred strains of mice that have been going for 100, 100 years and you know within some limits that you're dealing with basically an identical twin uh, in 2018 of the ones that were being used in 1918. So all these things are very are wonderful for science, and I think they ex- help explain why there's been such an explosion in this research. But again, I think you can point to uh, specific areas where maybe this has, there's been a, a cost, sort of a hidden cost. That that's the point that I was trying to make back in 2011. That it's time that we addressed what some of these hidden costs might be. And frankly, I the response I got from scientists it was very striking. I mean, most scientists who work with mice would say to me, "Well, of course I know that you know um, there are risks associated with focusing only on inbred mouse strains." I, of course, I know there are even strain huge strain differences between, say. You know, uh, black six mouse and a DBA mouse or something like that. Um, but then it's one of those things like, well, you know, this is the worst possible way to do science, except every other way of doing science. Like this is an, this is like a cost we accept, we understand and accept. And yet I feel like, and I've heard this in, in other reporting I've done on other, uh, on other issues in science. People, people sort of say, yeah, well, we know that. We know that. You're not telling us anything new. And they fall back on this idea that, you know, science is self-correcting. It'll all shake out in the end. And I just, I'm, I don't have that faith. I think people pay lip service to this idea, but they don't often, or in the past, they haven't often, um, you know, incorporated a deep understanding of that issue into the way they do their science. And I think that's changing in recent years, and that's quite wonderful to see. And uh, and why do you think it is changing? Do you think that these uh, discussions uh, have shaken up the scientific community somehow, or do you think it is still the, the sort of the self-correcting mechanism of science somehow that's at work that's what we're seeing now. Part of that is a complicated question. The simple question is, I don't think that I've had much influence on the way scientists do science. I think I maybe have helped in some small way to contribute to the way to that the public understands uh, these issues in science and that maybe supports the efforts of, of um, methodological reform movements within science. So in that in that sort of indirect way, I would be very glad to think that maybe I had some 
played some tiny role, but in terms of, uh, is, you know, that idea, well, the fact that these changes are being made, this, this reflects once again, the self-corrective mechanisms of science. Yeah, sure. But, um, I mean, it's taken a really long time and a lot of money has been wasted. And I think we might hope that those self-corrective mechanisms were a little more efficient and worked a little better. Um, you wrote an article about uh, research reproducibility in biomedicine and cancer research and the problems that those fields are having as well as fields like psychology. Could you say a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, as I said, I started, my interest in this began with biomedical research and issues with mouse models. But uh, I mean, there's just an extraordinary amount of evidence that um, that there are problems throughout the biomedical research literature. Uh, the American science journalist Richard Harris has written a book called Rigor Mortis, where he lays a lot of this stuff out. I mean, he talks about um, breast cancer cell lines that are actually melanoma cell lines. This problem was identified years ago. And I just, before talking to you, I was thinking about this and I just, you know, did a PubMed search and papers are still being published on these cell lines as if they were breast cancer cell lines. I mean, that's just insane <laughs> to me. Um, so such a simple fix there, right? You could just, uh, funding agencies or journals could require that, uh, that researchers authenticate their cell lines before they publish their results. That's going to cost some time and money, but not a huge amount. It seems like that would be a, a very worthwhile thing to do. You know, I'm still quite optimistic personally that science actually is able to self-correct itself because the movement that you're talking about, it actually does come from science itself. Uh, it's, it, it is the researchers uh, who are realizing that we just don't share resources well enough, that we don't collaborate well enough, uh, that the publishing system, well, that's really broken. Uh, <laughs> the whole incentives for science are wrong in the wrong places. Um, and you suggested some easy fixes for that, uh, like using different cell lines or model organism. But is there something more systematic that has to be changed as well? My sense is, uh, I think, as, as yours, is that there are a number of, uh, so there, there are some very specific issues like authenticating cell lines or, um, you know, another widespread one is the use of um, hypothesis testing, like the, the, the approach many scientists have to statistical analyses. That seems to, um, that's one where this is an idea that arose to in, improve science, to increase the, the, you know, accuracy and efficiency of, of, of the scientific process. And yet I think it's, um, become perverted in some way and now is is feeding a, a you know a plague of false positive results so that those are very specific things right but then as you say there are these structural issues about um the the way the incentives to publish um both the incentives that scientists have and that uh, journal editors have as a science journalist i'm kind of on the receiving ends of these press releases from the from um all the journals but in, you can see how the top journals like science and nature um they have an incentive to to stay on top they want to publish the splashiest findings well you know i think there's good research showing that the that science and nature papers may be less reliable, even though those are the best journals, their, their findings may be less reliable than, than those in other journals because they are driven in the same way scientists are to produce 
surprising results. A surprising result is, if you think about it in a kind of a Bayesian framework, a surprising result is less, simply less likely to be true. So, um, so I, I, I mean, is, is that what you're getting at these, as these sort of structural issues about the incentives for, for the practice of science? Yeah, this is the discussion that is going on in the whole open science uh, community movement. Um, there are very specific problems that people think about. For example, the publishing incentives, uh, which are also the career incentives. How do you actually make a career? Uh, it is all based on what you publish and where you publish. So, of course, you go for the splashiest stories, which then take several years. And, of course, you don't have a mouse model with it. Then you cannot publish because it's not complete and so on and so on. So, basically, there is a whole chain of events leading to not the best possible science being done or at least not being visible. Um, I just wonder, um, because open access and open data are quite obvious easy fixes to the problems we have with the publishing and sharing data, reproducibility issues. Um, I just wonder whether you came across something else, something not as obvious that um, that we haven't seen yet, that you as an external person, as a science journalist, uh, could point a finger at and say, well, this is something we haven't explored yet. One of the things that uh, I think... I, I apologize. This is not going to be, I, I don't think this is a direct answer to your question. So let me preface with an apology. But I, I do think that um, I've noticed there, there hasn't been as much discussion as I would like to see, as I would be curious to see about the question of, of um, how to calibrate um, sort of the application of these ideas, how to calibrate the application of rigor to science. Um, you know, the, uh, I mentioned cell line authentication. That seems like an easy one. And you could look at this. Oh, these are, this is the low hanging fruit. We should do this stuff first just because we can. But, um, I think that leaves open the question of, of, well, how many of these, uh, practices do you actually want to stack up? Because once you do enough of them, now you're talking about quite a lot of time and money. Um, so I, I mean, at least the, in the context that I've reported on, there's, there's sort of two camps. There's old guard entrenched, uh, authorities in science who say, oh, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. This is over. There's no crisis. It's overstated. And then you have, um, maybe a younger cohort of scientists who are advocating quite forcefully for, um, very broad changes and, uh, what's missing may be the um, the measured discussion of um, how to balance what what level of reproducibility do you actually want in the literature if you want to look at it that way um, at what point are you putting too much of a burden on researchers and so actually you're hurting yourself more than you're helping um just picking up on what you were saying about hurting versus helping. I think you mentioned in one of your articles the garden of forking paths and pre-registration. So not deciding on what your research results are going to be before you do the actual experiments. But I have read some uh, criticisms of pre-registration stating that they restrict science and they mean that the imagination that is required to do science is curtailed and limited and that it then makes science less adaptable. So this, I suppose, could be an example of how far do you go before you actually start coming around full circle and hurting the scientific 
process again. And I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, whether you think that's like a valid example. It's it's sort of funny to uh, think about from my perspective, having covered a lot of uh, findings that uh, didn't hold up because it's so clear that uh, what one might call the you know creative imagination of scientists has uh has you know blown up into into you know a wholesale um hallucination um so <laughs> i think there is value in curtailing that imagination um i think that you know there's certainly some way for pre-registration to exist um, in a circumscribed way where you have um, exploratory research and you have confirmatory research and they're presented as such. Um, I mean, even that would be a huge help. I just, you know, thinking back a little more about the previous question, though, I, it, it occurs to me the thing we started with, the stuff about mouse models, that hasn't really been part of the open science conversation. I mean, it isn't, it, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't even fit into the category. It's not a matter of openness unless you think about it as openness to new ideas. I do think that that is, uh, that's something that I find very interesting and important. And it's not just, um, you know, an issue of uh, biomedicine. I think you can, you can make the same kinds of, of critiques in different fields in psychology. Uh, you know, there was some interest a few years, a few years ago now before the open science stuff happened about the fact that most of these studies were done on the same kinds of people, um, you know, the, the weird acronym, white, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic uh, subjects. And, you know, that it's true in, um, you know, uh, in, I think in, in sort of astronomy research, you have a, a kind of research being done on uh, using common tools like this is a wonderful that we can have, you know, one space telescope that uh, groups around the world can do research on. But if there were some limiting factor to that instrument, uh, that limitation would be spread across the entire field. And I, again, I'm not saying that scientists in that area don't understand this problem, but I wonder if that uh, understanding is fully incorporated into the work that's done. And if there might not be more effort, I apologize for being vague, but there might not be more effort in some way to diversify the approach, uh, not just in biomedicine, but in all these other fields. We were talking about telescopes. Having one huge, big telescopes might introduce certain bias to the research being done because it's the only instrument being used, uh, like CERN, for example. There's only one CERN. But this is a question of resources, right? I mean, this is really a question of how much money do you spend on research then? Because if you want two CERNs, then that will cost double the money. And where does the money come from? Well, usually it comes from some kind of governmental sources, so taxpayers' money. So why should then taxpayers approve of researchers having more toys to play with if they are being told that these toys do not bring the benefits that they were hoping for, Right. Um, because Emma and I were discussing it before and we're wondering, is it really helpful what the science journalism is doing or is it more like undermining the public trust, actually? Yeah, so so I think, um, I mean, just to go back to this, the, the work I did that started my interest in this on the mouse model, um, 
that, that was a series of articles. And, and the final article in that series was about um, was comparing the mouse, mouse cancer models to naked mole rat cancer models. And I was just making the point that, you know, the mouse in some way was selected as a cancer model because it's exquisitely vulnerable to getting cancer. I mean, it's just it's, if you want to produce tumors, the mouse is, a, is a, a great factory for doing so, or a mouse colony is a great factory for doing so. Whereas the naked mole rat is kind of the other end of the uh, spectrum. It's very, very, very hard to get a naked mole rat to develop cancer. That's interesting. So I was kind of, you know, I guess one could imagine a world in which uh, these are two opposite approaches. We we have one animal that's producing lots of cancer and one animal that seems um, you know, immune to cancer in some way. Let's maybe we want to split our resources between these two organisms. That's as a practical matter not going to happen. Just you know, how many naked mole rat researchers are there in the world? I mean, I think at the time that I did that, uh, that I was doing that reporting, there were two or three labs in the US, um, whereas there are, you know, so, so many labs doing mouse research on cancer. So, uh, you know, I think that that doing that kind of journalism, I would hope would maybe give some space to the funding agencies uh, to fund naked mole rat research or fund research that might seem a little more uh, bizarre to the average taxpayer than just dumping more millions and billions of dollars into the conventional approaches. So in one sense, I think this kind of journalism can maybe uh, expand, to go back to the idea of imagination, expand the imagination, the public imagination, or the uh, even policymakers' imagination for what kind of work might be useful. And to the extent that that imagination, that that's a, a um, that the, again, that, there, that we're talking about creative imagination and not fantasy, I think that's a good thing. Now, this question of whether journalism like mine might be counterproductive in some way, um, I'm not sure how much of this is an international story, but here in the U.S., uh, this has been made very vivid. Um, the uh, current administration in Washington has uh, now been using this idea of reproducibility issues to attack uh, science, to especially regulatory environmental science, to slow down the process of making regulations because, well, how do we know that this work is reproducible? Shouldn't we wait until each of these studies has been independently verified? And they're using all of the same language that the open science movement and citing, uh, you know, articles about uh, articles like mine. I don't think they cite any of my articles, thank goodness, uh, but citing articles like mine and citing um uh, key academic papers that have highlighted this problem. So, uh, so certainly that is a very real concern. I just, uh, don't think that, um, it should dissuade journalists from covering this because, um, you know, because that, that claim has been made all along. I've seen that claim made all along. Don't, uh, you know, don't bring this up. We'll work it out on our own. I mean, this claim is made every time there's a case of scientific fraud. This claim is made by the local institution. Like, we'll, we'll figure it out. There is value in talking to the press. I'm 
say, as a biased journalist, uh, because it, it puts pressure on these, um, on, on those in power to take decisive action. I think that's been the case in open science as well. If it, if this stuff hadn't spread, if there hadn't been, um, some public awareness in psychology, for example, that, uh, you know, that all of these books, best-selling pop science books were full of, of suspect findings. I think it would be a lot harder for reformers within that field to uh, convince the journal editors to develop new open science policies. I don't know if those journal editors would admit that in some way they were motivated by um, the public image of their field, but I'm just going to uh, hypothesize here that they are. <laughs> so, so I do think, I think there's value in it. Um, and I think this sort of comes back to the science is broken stuff, um, that we started with. I think that phrase, when I have used it, I've, I've, it's made, uh, scientists angry and they worry that, you know, it, it will lead the public to become suspicious of all science and to cut funding. Um, you know, I, I understand that concern. I just, I don't, uh, I, I don't see any evidence that it's done so. Um, and I think the fact is that the, um, public perception of scientists, at least in the United States, has been quite stable over the years. If anything, I feel like this attention to open science has led to very productive reforms to the way science is done. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with this, uh, issue I mentioned in, and in Washington with in the environmental, uh, regulators. I think that is a, a, a worrisome development. And there's been, you know, a lot of good pushback to that in, in the media as well as from scientists. So, uh, so we'll see. I mean, to be fair, I don't think science journalism should be judged by anything the current American administration does. Yeah. Another thing I want to say about that phrase, science is broken. Uh, I mean, this is sort of a semantic point, but I, I think some of the response I get when I've used that phrase is, oh, if you tell people science is broken, they won't believe science anymore, that like, science is, uh, cannot be fixed. And I, I mean, again, this is, this is just a, a matter of, of, of how one uses the language, but to me, the phrase science is broken is just a way of saying, no, there are, there are major problems that need to be addressed in a purposeful way rather than the idea of science is self-correcting, I think is often used to say, we don't have to do anything about it. It's like when the researchers, the TB researchers would tell me, oh yes, I understand there's a difference between uh, mouse tuberculosis and human tuberculosis, but you know, I'm just going to keep doing my work. I'm not going to do anything about it because science is self-correcting. Well, it's just, it's only self-correct if people go to the trouble of doing that correction. It yeah. doesn't happen by magic. And so I, I think science is broken. I, I feel like is a useful phrase because it's, it's saying, I think in one of my pieces, I use the metaphor, you know, if you're, if you're driving a car and it breaks down on the side of the road, you, you know, you need to fix, you need, you need to get help and, and fix the car. It's not going to just sort of magically repair itself. Um, but that doesn't mean that you'll be stuck there for the, that you should abandon all, you know, <laughs> cars forever. It just means it's time to fix the car. Okay. Yeah. Well, on that note, thanks, Daniel. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. Bye bye.
Um, I really liked when he mentioned the uh, creative and the imagination of scientists versus full-blown hallucination. I mean, it's kind of harsh, but... Uh, made me laugh. Huh? <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it's definitely... I mean, I don't know, working in the lab, I've seen it several times. And I also, I mean, I've seen it with myself. Of course, you like totally want your science, like what you're doing in the lab to succeed and then start like imagining things and seeing things out there. And I don't think we really trained for um, a scientist to actually uh, think about biases. And um... No, I mean, that's a really, that's a really good point, actually, that, y- yeah, I mean, you, you, you're not ever sort of given any context for this, I guess. Yeah. So I don't think it's like it's an evil... Uh, evil intent on the on the part of scientists to like falsify results or you know pay hacking or all this like or publish uh the flashiest story uh ever even if it's not completely true it's mm-hmm. it's just the whole system of incentives and the way you progress the science it's basically uh trains you to think in certain ways right it's like yeah absolutely like a science pavlov yeah, 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 exactly. That's probably not me producible, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Come to think of it, probably if you ring a bell, the dogs just ignore you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like what you said about open science challenging hierarchies yeah. and, and challenging yeah. this established system of yeah. incentives. But I think it's really cool about the, the, the preprint idea, for example. I mean, this is really shaking up very yeah. in a way. What I also found, I mean, what I also found really um, um, shocking, um, I didn't know about it, the, the whole Trump thing of uh, now using open science as a excuse or as a justification for stalling science, basically. And, yeah, climate uh, yeah. research and, and, and environmental reforms and stuff. I mean, yeah, that's that's horrifying. That's really I mean, horrifying. That's an, that's an idea behind it. No, but no. I guess this is the whole this whole this whole discussion about you know how openly do you communicate science in order not to confuse the public. I yeah, mean, so, so there's an article like, about that kind of. So climate change scientists have this problem all the time yeah. because they're trying to be scientifically transparent and uh, have integrity, and they use words like probably and consensus and stuff because those are the scientifically accurate words but then if they use that then these these people spring on it and they say oh well you're only probably sure yeah oh you only got a consensus not a you know not everyone agrees well no, not everyone agrees on anything. There's people who think the Earth is flat. Doesn't mean we should stop. <laughs> you, you know. Which is really just mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, that's but okay. But let's yeah, but, I mean, You know, <laughs> yeah, they're crazy people. You can't stop crazy people. Well, I guess. Not. But I mean, it, it's difficult, you know. I mean, how do you how do you communicate science mm-hmm. without losing, you know, the scientific integrity? I mean, if you know, you start claiming. Uh, it is like it is. Uh, I mean, this is what I saw, and that therefore it's true. I mean, that's not science. That's just like uh, not yeah, faith. Well, that's the full-blown hallucination then, right? right? That's yeah. what we come up to. You know, I was just thinking about this using open science as a, um, you know, for uh, sort of um, evil stuff. I mean, you know. The, yeah, the dark side. Yeah. The dark side. Um, I was just thinking also, I mean, there are so many businesses now that are basic. I mean, they basing their business on the open science ideas, right? I mean, all this like alternative publishing platforms. And I think, I mean, most of it is really good and it's really interesting to have, you know, alternative business models for publishing. I just wonder if it's just uh, still business as usual. Um, mm. If this is also hijacking the open site. Why do you need a publishing platform as a like closed kind of curated yeah. system? I wonder if that's... Really- yeah, I mean, I, I guess to be truly open, you could just just share things. 
Um, on the other hand, then we then, end then, up with <laughs> with the internet full of like you know cells. Well, that's the problem, you know. That's what yeah. kind of shows that we've got we've got too much uh, knowledge and not enough wisdom. So we're yeah. just buried under information, but yeah. we've got no way of navigating that information. Yeah. It's a real problem. Yeah, it's actually. I mean, even like looking at life sciences, like no, even going away from this like people, internet trolls, whatever. But uh, basically, just in bioinformatics, I mean, the challenge now is not to generate data; it's not to store. It. I mean, storing is also a challenge in a way, but it's to actually to uh, organize meaningfully. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this comes up with, with with open data. So it's fine to share your data, but you need to curate it. It needs to be interoperable. Yeah. It needs to be understandable. Yeah. You can't just dump data out there. There's no help to anyone. Um, yeah, the one, going back to what Dan said, he basically came up with what I think should be the tagline for the open science movement, which is uh, <clears throat> science only self-corrects if people correct it. Yeah. Which I think is is so true. Yeah, I mean, because the system are people, actually. I mean, yeah. Totally, yeah. it's not exactly. something that just, you know, gets dumped on us and then it's there. And Yeah, it's not, it's, it's going to magically happen on its own. Yeah, it's like, it's this phrase I usually, uh, I actually really like this, like, it's made by people for people. So, uh, yes. so people can change it, right? Yeah, and I mean, of all, all the things in the world, scientists should know that. Yeah. <laughs> scientists should know that things don't happen by magic. They only happen if you cause an effect. Yes. It's a fundamental principle, I mean, you know. <laughs> no, but I think the main main message uh, is really, I mean, apart from like, you know, people people do things, people can fix things, but it's really the science is not broken, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, still, I still think that some of the things you said about um, this not being a self-collective mechanism, I'm not really sure. I think since this whole open science movement, the criticism actually came from science. For me, that's actually a proof of um, that, um, yeah, science is self-correcting. Yeah. Could be maybe be a bit faster with that. Yeah. On the other hand, you have to first uh, you have to first realize that something is wrong before you can correct it, right? I mean, yeah, and you have to build some kind of momentum. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure there were a few lone wo- voices crying in the wilderness for some years, but it's only when they've got the political will, mainly from the EU and, and in America, some of the foundations and the funding mm. bodies really got behind it. Essentially, when there's money mm. behind it, that things started to change. And that's always been the way of the world. Money, money, money. <laughs> it's always yep. the money. You know, there's, I found this uh, Twitter account. Uh, it's, it doesn't seem like it's active since many years, but it was started, I think, 2011. Then okay. it was some tweets, 2013. It's actually called Science is Broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has some quotes. No clue who posted those and who was doing this Twitter channel because there's no information on it. Um, but, well, that fixes science if you just... <laughs> yeah, just anonymously tweet things. Yeah. Always really helpful, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but basically, I mean, there was this one, uh, one of those quotes was like, um, as an as a ironical, cynical uh, quote, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're doing mini preps by teaching um, high school students how to extract DNA. Ha, ha, ha. Well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, I really don't understand, like, I mean, so this was, I guess, was about um, how um, there's not enough money or time to do mini, mini preps, by, by the way, like, for those of you who are not molecular biologists, like me, it's, it's just a way to extract DNA from bacteria, for example. And it's actually a really nice uh, thing to let um, high school students do it for you. I wish I'd done that in high school. Do you know what they gave us in high school? A pig's heart to dissect and then he fainted. I'm a vegetarian. It was horrendous. We had we had a cow's eye, and one of the guys oh. ate it for five crowns. What? Yeah. What a crazy Swedish school did you go to? Okay, so extracting yeah. DNA at the moment seems like a much more sophisticated <laughs> and civilized way to teach young people science. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, um, that's yeah. it for today. Follow us on Twitter at OOSP, that's Orion Open Science Podcast, um, or drop us an email at orion at mdc-berlin.de or for the German listeners, orion at mdc-berlin.de. The show is brought to you by the EU-funded Orion Open Science Project. The music is written and produced by Fabio de Miguel. Sound mixing is done by Paolo Oliveira. You can get the podcast from wherever you normally get your podcast from. And it's available every Thursday. Thank you for listening. Join us next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.